Chapter Twenty Seven of Sylvia's Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Mackenzie. Sylvia's Lovers by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Twenty Seven. Gloomy Days. Philip had money in the Foster's Bank, not so much as it might have been if he had not had to pay for the furniture in his house. Much of this furniture was old and had belonged to the brothers Foster, and they had let Philip have it at a very reasonable rate, but still the purchase of it had diminished the amount of his savings. But on the sum which he possessed he drew largely, he drew all, nay, he overdrew his account somewhat, to his former master's dismay, although the kindness of their hearts overruled the harder arguments of their heads. All was wanted to defend Daniel Robson at the approaching York Assizes, his wife had handed over to philip all the money or money's worth she could lay her hands upon daniel himself was not one to be much beforehand with the world but to bell's thrifty imagination the round golden guineas tied up in the old stocking-foot against rent-day seemed a mint of money on which philip might draw infinitely as yet she did not comprehend the extent of her husband's danger sylvia went about like one in a dream keeping back the hot tears that might interfere with the course of life she had prescribed for herself in that terrible hour when she first learnt all. Every penny of money either she or her mother could save went to Philip. Kester's hoard, too, was placed in Hepburn's hands at Sylvia's earnest entreaty, for Kester had no great opinion of Philip's judgment, and would rather have taken his money straight himself to Mr. Dawson and begged him to use it for his master's behoof indeed if anything the noiseless breach between kester and philip had widened of late it was seed time and philip in his great anxiety for every possible interest that might affect sylvia and also as some distraction from his extreme anxiety about her father had taken to study agriculture of an evening in some old books which he had borrowed the farmer's complete guide and such like and from time to time he came down upon the practical dogged Kester with directions gathered from the theories in his books. Of course the two fell out, but without many words. Kester persevered in his old ways, making light of Philip and his books in manner and action, till at length Philip withdrew from the contest. Many a man may lead a horse to water, but there's few can make him drink, and Philip certainly was not one of those few. Kester, indeed, looked upon him with jealous eyes on many accounts. He had favoured Charlie Kinraid as a lover of Sylvia's, and, though he had no idea of the truth, though he believed in the drowning of the specksioneer as much as anyone, yet the year which had elapsed since Kinraid's supposed death was but a very short while to the middle-aged man, who forgot how slowly time passes with the young, and he could often have scolded Sylvia if the poor girl had been a whit less heavy at heart than she was for letting Philip come so much about her, come though it was on her father's business. For the darkness of their common dread drew them together, occasionally to the comparative exclusion of Bell and Kester, which the latter perceived and resented. Kester even allowed himself to go so far as to wonder what Philip could want with all the money, which to him seemed unaccountable and once or twice the ugly thought crossed his mind that shops conducted by young men were often not so profitable as when guided by older heads and that some of the coin poured into philip's keeping 
might have another destination than the defence of his master. Poor Philip, and he was spending all his own, and more than all his own money, and no one ever knew it, as he had bound down his friendly bankers to secrecy. Once only Kester ventured to speak to Sylvia on the subject of Philip. She had followed her cousin to the field just in front of their house, just outside the porch, to ask him some questions she dared not put in her mother's presence. Belle, indeed, in her anxiety, usually absorbed all the questions when Philip came, and stood, after Philip had bid her good-bye, hardly thinking about him at all, but looking unconsciously after him as he ascended the brow, and at the top he had turned to take a last glance at the place his love inhabited, and, seeing her, he had waved his hat in gratified farewell. She, meanwhile, was roused from far other thoughts than of him, and of his now acknowledged love, by the motion against the sky, and was turning back into the house, when she heard Kester's low hoarse call, and saw him standing at the ship and door. "'Come here, the wench!' said he indignantly. "'Is this a time for courting?' "'Courting?' said she, drawing up her head, and looking back at him with proud defiance. "'Aye, courting!' "'What other macker thing is when thou's gazing after yon meddlesome chap, "'as if thou'd send thy eyes after him, and he make him now looks back at thee? "'It's what we call courting in me young days, anyhow. "'And it's not a time for a wench to go courting when her father's in prison,' "'said he, with a consciousness as he uttered these last words, "'that he was cruel and unjust and going too far, "'yet carried on to say them by his hot jealousy against Philip. "'Sylvia continued looking at him without speaking.' she was too much offended for expression thou may glower and thou may look lass said he but i'd thought better on thee it's like last week the last sweetheart were drowned but thou's not one to waste time in remembering them as is gone if indeed thou ever cared a bottom for yon kin raid if it wasn't a make-believe her lips were contracted and drawn up showing her small glittering teeth which were scarcely apart as she breathed out thou think so does thou that i've forgotten him thou better have a care of thy tongue then as if fearful that her self-command might give way she turned into the house and going through the kitchen like a blind person she went up to her now unused chamber and threw herself face downwards flat on her bed almost smothering herself Ever since Daniel's committal, the decay that had imperceptibly begun in his wife's bodily and mental strength during her illness of the previous winter had been making quicker progress. She lost her reticence of speech, and often talked to herself. She had not so much forethought as of old. Slight differences, it is true, but which, with some others of the same description, gave foundation for the homely expression which some now applied to Belle. She'll never be the same woman again this afternoon she had cried herself to sleep in her chair after philip's departure she had not heard sylvia's sweeping passage through the kitchen but half an hour afterwards she was startled up by kester's abrupt entry where's sylvie asked he i don't know said bell looking scared and as if she was ready to cry it's no news about him said she standing up and supporting herself on the stick she was now accustomed to use bless you no do not be afeard missus it's only as i spoke asked it at wench and i want to tell her as i'm sorry said kester advancing into the kitchen and looking round for sylvia sylvie sylvie shouted he she mun be in house 
Sylvia came slowly down the stairs and stood before him. Her face was pale, her mouth set and determined, the light of her eyes veiled in gloom. Kester shrank from her look, and even more from her silence. "'I'm come to ax pardon,' said he after a little pause. She was still silent. "'I'm known above axing pardon, though I'm fifty and more, and these but a silly wench as I've nursed in my arms.' I'll say before thy mother as I ought never to use them words, and as how I'm sorry for it. I don't understand it at all, said Belle in a hurried and perplexed tone. What's Kester been saying, my lass? she added, turning to Sylvia. Sylvia went a step or two nearer to her mother, and took hold of her hand as if to quieten her. Then, facing once more round, she said deliberately to Kester, If thou want Kester, I'd never forgive thee. Never she added with bitterness as the words he had used recurred to her mind it's in me to hate thee now for saying what thou did but thou dear old kester after all and i can't help myself i mun needs forgive thee and she went towards him he took her little head between his horny hands and kissed it she looked up with tears in her eyes saying softly never say things like them again never speak on i'll bark my tongue off first he interrupted. He kept his word. In all Philip's comings and goings to and from Hatersbank Farm at this time, he never spoke again of his love. In look, words, manner, he was like a thoughtful, tender brother, nothing more. He could be nothing more in the presence of the great dread which loomed larger upon him after every conversation with the lawyer. For Mr. Donkin had been right in his prognostication. Government took up the attack on the rendezvous with a high and heavy hand. It was necessary to assert authority, which had been of late too often braved. An example must be made, to strike dismay into those who opposed and defied the press gang, and all the minor authorities who held their powers from government were in a similar manner severe and relentless in the execution of their duty. So the attorney, who went over to see the prisoner in York Castle, told Philip, he added that Daniel still retained his pride in his achievement, and could not be brought to understand the dangerous position in which he was placed, that, when pressed and questioned as to circumstances that might possibly be used in his defence, he always wandered off to accounts of previous outrages committed by the press-gang, or to passionate abuse of the trick by which men had been lured from their homes on the night in question to assist in putting out an imaginary fire, and then seized and carried off. Some of this very natural indignation might possibly have some effect on the jury, and this seemed the only ground of hope, and was indeed a slight one, as the judge was likely to warn the jury against allowing their natural sympathy in such a case to divert their minds from the real question. Such was the substance of what Philip heard, and heard repeatedly, during his many visits to Mr. Dawson. And now the time of trial drew near, for the York Assizes opened on March the 12th, not much above three weeks since the offence was committed, which took Daniel from his home and placed him in peril of death. Philip was glad that, the extremity of his danger never having been hinted to Bell, and travelling some forty miles being a most unusual exertion at that time to persons of her class, the idea of going to see her husband at York had never suggested itself to Bell's mind. Her increasing feebleness made this seem a step only to be taken in case of the fatal extreme necessity. Such was the conclusion that both Sylvia and he had come to, 
and it was the knowledge of this that made Sylvia strangle her own daily longing to see her father. Not but that her hopes were stronger than her fears. Philip never told her the causes for despondency. She was young, and she, like her father, could not understand how fearful sometimes is the necessity for prompt and severe punishment of rebellion against authority. Philip was to be in York during the time of the Assizes, and it was understood almost without words that if the terrible worst occurred, the wife and daughter were to come to York as soon as might be. For this end, Philip silently made all the necessary arrangements before leaving Monkshaven. The sympathy of all men was with him. It was too large an occasion for Coulson to be anything but magnanimous. He urged Philip to take all the time requisite, to leave all business cares to him. And, as Philip went about pale and sad, there was another cheek that grew paler still, another eye that filled with quiet tears as his heaviness of heart became more and more apparent. The day for opening the assizes came on. Philip was in York Minster, watching the solemn antique procession in which the highest authority in the county accompanies the judges to the house of the Lord, to be there admonished as to the nature of their duties. As Philip listened to the sermon with a strained and beating heart, his hopes rose higher than his fears for the first time, and that evening he wrote his first letter to Sylvia. Dear Sylvia, it will be longer first than I thought for. Mr. Dawson says Tuesday in next week, but keep up your heart. I have been hearing the sermon today which is preached to the judges, and the clergyman said so much in it about mercy and forgiveness. I think they cannot fail to be lenient this our size. I have seen uncle, who looks but thin, but is in good heart, only he will keep saying he would do it over again if he had the chance, which neither Mr. Dawson nor I thinks is wise in him, in especial as the jailer is by and hears every word as is said. He was very fain of hearing all about home, and wants you to rear Daisy's calf, as he thinks she will prove a good one. He bade me give his best love to you and my aunt, and his kind duty to Kester. Sylvia, will you try and forget how I used to scold you about your writing and spelling, and just write me two or three lines? I think I would rather have them badly spelt than not, because then I shall be sure they are yours. And never mind about capitals. I was a fool to say such a deal about them, for a man does just as well without them. A letter from you would do a vast to keep me patient all these days till Tuesday. Direct, Mr. Philip Hepburn, care of Mr. Fraser, Draper, Micklegate, York. My affectionate duty to my aunt, your respectful cousin and servant, Philip Hepburn. P.S. The sermon was grand. The text was Zechariah. Chapter 7, verse 9. Execute true judgment and show mercy. God grant it may have put mercy into the judge's heart as is to try my uncle. Heavily the days passed over. On Sunday, Belle and Sylvia went to church with a strange, half-superstitious feeling, as if they could propitiate the Most High to order the events in their favour by paying him the compliment of attending to duties in their time of sorrow, which they had too often neglected in their prosperous days. But he, who knoweth our frame, and remembereth that we are dust, took pity upon his children, and sent some of his blessed peace into their hearts, else they could scarce have endured the agony of suspense of those next hours. For as they came slowly and wearily home from church, Sylvia could no longer bear her secret, but told her mother of the peril in which Daniel stood. 
cold as the march wind blew they had not felt it and had sat down on a hedge-bank for bell to rest and then sylvia spoke trembling and sick for fear yet utterly unable to keep silence any longer bell heaved up her hands and let them fall down on her knees before she replied the lord is above us said she solemnly he has sent a fear of this into my heart afore now i never breathed it to thee my lass and i never spoken it to thee mother because sylvia choked with crying and laid her head on her mother's lap feeling that she was no longer the strong one and the protector but the protected bell went on stroking her head the lord is like a tender nurse as weans a child to look on and to like what it loathed once he has sent me dreams as prepared me for this if so be it comes to pass philip is hopeful said sylvia raising her head and looking through her tears at her mother ay he is and i cannot tell but i think it's not for naught as the lord has taken away all fear of death out of my heart i think he means as daniel and me is to go hand in hand through the valley like as we walked up to our wedding in crossway church i could never guide house without daniel and i should be feared to take a deal more nor as good for him without me but me mother i was forgetting me moaned out sylvia oh mother mother think on me nay my lass i'm none forgetting you i'd a sore out o' last winter a thinking on thee when that chap kinraid were hanging about thee i'll noan speak ill on dead but i were uneasy like but sin philip and thee seem to have made it up sylvia shivered and opened her mouth to speak but did not say a word am sin the lord been comforting me and talking to me many a time when thou thought i were asleep things as seem to red themselves up and if daniel goes i'm ready to follow i could never stand living to hear folks that had been hung it seems so unnatural and shameful but mother he won't he shan't be hung said sylvia springing to her feet philip says he won't bell shook her head they walked on sylvia both disheartened and almost irritated at her mother's despondency but before they went to bed at night bell said things which seemed as though the morning's feelings had been but temporary and as if she was referring every decision to the period of her husband's return when father comes home seemed a sort of burden at the beginning or end of every sentence and this reliance on his certain coming back to them was almost as great a trial to sylvia as the absence of all hope had been in the morning but that instinct told her that her mother was becoming incapable of argument she would have asked her why her views were so essentially changed in so few hours this inability of reason in poor bell made sylvia feel very desolate monday passed over how neither of them knew for neither spoke of what was filling the thoughts of both before it was light on tuesday morning bell was astir it's very early mother said weary sleepy sylvia dreading returning consciousness ay lass said bell in a brisk cheerful tone but he'll maybe be home to-night there's bound to have all things ready for him anyhow said sylvia sitting up in bed he couldn't come home to-night tut lass i doesn't know how quick a man comes home to wife and child i'll be ready at any rate she hurried about in a way which sylvia wondered to see till at length she fancied that perhaps her mother did so to drive away thought every place was cleaned and there was scarce time allowed for breakfast till at last long before midday all the work was done and the two sat down to their spinning wheels sylvia's spirits sank lower and lower at each speech of her mother's from whose mind all fear seemed to have disappeared 
leaving only a strange, restless kind of excitement. "'It's time for potatoes,' said Belle, after her wool had snapped many a time from her uneven tread. "'Mother,' said Sylvia, "'it's but just gone ten. "'Put em on,' said Belle, without attending to the full meaning of her daughter's words. "'It'll maybe isn't day on if we get dinner done betimes. "'But Kester isn't far acre field, and it'll not be on till noon.' This seemed to settle matters for a while, but then Belle pushed her wheel away and began searching for her hood and cloak. Sylvia found them for her, and then asked, sadly, "'What does swan for, mother?' "'I'll go up to Brownthrope Field, and just have a look down lane.' "'I'll go with thee,' said Sylvia, feeling all the time the uselessness of any looking for intelligence from York so early in the day. Very patiently did she wait by her mother's side during the long half-hour which Belle spent in gazing down the road for those who never came. When they got home, Sylvia put the potatoes on to boil, but when dinner was ready and the three were seated at the dresser, Belle pushed her plate away from her, saying it was so long after dinner-time that she was past eating. Kester would have said something about its being only half-past twelve, but Sylvia gave him a look beseeching silence, and he went on with his dinner without a word, only brushing away the tears from his eyes with the back of his hand from time to time. "'I'll noan come far from home to rest at day,' said he in a whisper to Sylvia as he went out. "'Will this day never come to an end?' cried Belle plaintively. "'Oh, mother, it'll come to an end some time, never fear. I've heard say, be the day weary or be the day long, at length it ringeth to evensong.' "'To evensong, to evensong,' repeated Belle. She think now that evensong means death, Sylvie? I cannot tell, I cannot bear it, mother, said Sylvia in despair. I'll make some clapbread. That's an heavy job, and we'll wild wait afternoon. I do, replied the mother. He'll like it fresh, he'll like it fresh. Murmuring and talking to herself, she fell into a doze, from which Sylvia was careful not to disturb her. The days were now getting long, although as cold as ever and at Hatersbank Farm the light lingered, as there was no near horizon to bring on early darkness. Sylvia had all ready for her mother's tea against she wakened, but she slept on and on, the peaceful sleep of a child, and Sylvia did not care to waken her. Just after the sun had set, she saw Kester outside the window making signs to her to come out. She stole out on tiptoe by the back kitchen, the door of which was standing open. She almost ran against Philip, who did not perceive her, as he was awaiting her coming the other way round the corner of the house, and who turned upon her a face whose import she read in an instant. "'Philip!' was all she said, and then she fainted at his feet, coming down with a heavy bang on the round paving-stones of the yard. "'Kester! Kester!' he cried, for she looked like one dead, and with all his strength the wearied man could not lift her and carry her into the house." With Kester's help she was borne into the back kitchen, and Kester rushed to the pump for some cold water to throw over her, while Philip, kneeling at her head, was partly supporting her in his arms, and, heedless of any sight or sound, the shadow of someone fell upon him. He looked up and saw his aunt, the old, dignified, sensible expression on her face, exactly like her former self, composed, strong, and calm. "'My lass,' said she, sitting down by Philip, and gently taking her out of his arms into her own. "'Lass, bear up. We'll none bear up, and be a gate on our way to him. He'll be needing us now. Bear up, my lass. The Lord will give us strength. We mun go to him, aye. Time's precious. Thou mun cry thy cry at after.' Sylvia opened her dim eyes, and heard her mother's voice. 
The ideas came slowly into her mind, and slowly she rose up, standing still, like one who has been stunned, to regain her strength. And then, taking hold of her mother's arm, she said in a soft, strange voice, Let's go. I'm ready. End of chapter 27